Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. Sometimes when things start to seem automatic or routine, it's really because we're stuck in a rut. It's funny how being in a routine and feeling the flow makes us feel relaxed and comfortable. But as soon as I say stuck in a rut, we feel uncomfortable. There's nothing wrong with being in the zone, as they say. But what if the zone you're in is keeping you from finding the better version of yourself because it's really just a comfortable rut? The solution, which we're going to talk about today, is to simply get a change of perspective. back, a friend of mine was telling me about an experience he had. He was on a hockey team and he was the goalie. Right before they went on the ice, Olympic skater Sasha Cohen was on the ice before them. It turned out that most of her jumps were done right in the crease in front of the goal. He said he would skate out there and there would be these deep grooves etched in the ice right in the crease where he lived as a goalie. The danger in this is that it isn't just the grooves guide your skates and take you where you don't want to go, but as you fight against the rut, you run the risk of hurting yourself as well. Maybe that's why it's so easy to get stuck in a rut and just let it take you somewhere instead of fighting against it. Have you ever heard the story about the frog that fell into a deep rut in the road and he tried as, and tried as he might, he couldn't get himself out? Mrs. Frog, standing above the rut, admonished, cajoled, beckoned, and belittled him to no avail. Get out, come on, let's go, she pleaded. But Mr. Frog, down in the deep rut, said simply, there's no way I can get out of this rut. Leaving him there, Mrs. Frog hopped down to the pond, and in a few minutes, Mr. Frog appeared beside her on her favorite lily pad. I thought you said you couldn't get out, she exclaimed. He responded, well, a big truck came along, and I had to. This story is about how being in a rut leads to indecision. Rarely do we get out of an indecision until something comes along to create enough fear that it forces us out. The natural human inclination is to avoid fear, but by so doing, we may be avoiding the very thing that would get us out of our rut and elevate us to a higher level. There's another thing that can get us out of a rut, and that's a change in perspective. It turns out, and this is explained very well in the book Thinking Fast and Slow by Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman, that we tend to see what we expect to see rather than observing what really is. This happens because our brains prefer to use heuristics in place of actual thinking. This is done to save energy, but more importantly, it's done to save time. Heuristics are essential for thinking fast. The problem is that when you put yourself in a position where you're pressed for time, you're actively pushing yourself forward using a heuristic instead of actual thinking. Real thinking requires that you have the time to slow down and use it. Slow thinking is more accurate thinking, but it takes more time, and some people are determined to go fast. The problem with fast thinking is that it feels right, but it's far more prone to mistakes. After about a decade in practice, I suddenly discovered that if I would slow down a little, usually only adding a minute or so to the patient's encounter, it would make the difference in the results I get. Ultimately, I gain time and accuracy by slowing down, not by speeding up. That was an important change of perspective for me, and that's the kind of thing I want to talk about today. One of our needs is the need to attract patients. Charisma is an interesting and often misunderstood phenomenon. I recently heard an expert on this subject talk about it. They said that they always assumed charisma is something you're either born with or without. It turns out it's actually something that anyone can create in their life. Charisma is the magical blending of competence, 
and kindness. Oh, but kindness, what an elusive beast. Every person on planet Earth thinks of themselves as kind. Even serial killers, who are known for their high self-esteem, often think of themselves as being kind and merciful. What this means is that none of us are actually equipped to accurately judge whether or not we are kind. Or maybe you try to be more kind, but the real problem is a lack of confidence. Or even worse than that, you have confidence, but have a poor way of communicating it. So it's not even that you have a problem, but you have a perceived problem that's just as bad as actually having a problem. This is why charisma is such an elusive beast. So here's a change of perspective. It doesn't work to try to be more kind. Ultimately, you are kind or you are not. But trying to be more kind is really just faking it, and that can be worse than not being kind at all. Kind people tend to listen to others, and they do it without judgment. Kind people are also patient when helping others, and they do it without expecting anything in return. Kind people are honest, grateful, and forgiving. It's easy to see why kind people are so attractive, but it's also easy to see that they are in fact quite rare. Speaking of attractiveness, one of the things we have to do in practice is to attract people to ourselves. It's funny to me that most people think of attractiveness as their outward appearance, and they'll spend time and money to try to improve the way they look on the outside. What's less obvious is that personality is a huge influence on how people see us physically. Swami and colleagues in 2010 studied the influence of personality on perceptions of physical attractiveness. They asked male participants to rate the attractiveness of photographs of various female figures ranging from emaciated to obese. Some participant groups received positive personality information about the women in the picture, extroverted, agreeable, conscientious, open, and stable, while others received negative personality information or no information at all. Results found that all groups agreed on the body shape that was most attractive. However, groups given positive personality information found a significantly wider range of body sizes physically attractive compared to the control group. Groups given negative personality information found a significantly narrower range of body sizes attractive than the control group. An earlier study by Lewandowski, Aaron, and Guy in 2007 supports this effect. Their study used both men and women as participants manipulated personality trait descriptions, and utilized ratings of yearbook photos. The authors found that pictures paired with positive traits were rated as more attractive, and those paired with negative traits were rated as less attractive when compared to controls. This effect occurred with pictures of both attractive and unattractive students. This effect also happened for both men and women participants, with women a bit more sensitive to negative personality information. Finally, the effect also influenced judgments of desirability as a dating partner. Additional research found that perceived honesty affects judgments of physical attractiveness as well. Similarly, naturalistic studies also show that judgments of physical attractiveness are influenced by familiarity, liking, respect, talent, and effort. This occurs with both men and women. Overall, personality and character information appears to have an impact on perceptions of physical attractiveness. While it may not be easy to work on your personality and attitudes, it is much easier and less expensive than trying to change your physical appearance. I've often thought it funny that people will spend countless hours in front of a mirror to try to make themselves look better without any awareness that it actually might be their personality that's holding them back and making them look bad. It's been my observation that personality is far more likely to be a severe limitation than actual physical appearance is. 
All right, let's take this change perspective and apply it directly to chiropractic. Let's start with your adjusting. No doubt, there are things you do on setup that are distinctive and natural. In a word, it's comfortable. But what if it's wrong? What if it's setting you up to fail? How would you ever know? And how would you ever change it when it's your comfort zone that you run to? Let me give you an example. When I taught Gonstead Labs, I would have about 20 students per lab, and very few of them had any idea how to do a Gonstead seated cervical. I liked that because they were a clean slate for me to build up the way I wanted. One thing I would stress heavily is that if your stabilization hand is going to stabilize a P to A thrust, then your stabilization hand must provide an A to P counter pressure. That is only possible if your elbow of your stabilization hand is anterior to your wrist. I've filmed this happening many different times on these students, but once the elbow draws even or goes posterior, the P to A thrust will induce rotation and not P to A glide. I've often told students who are still hoping to get any cavitation at all, that they need to change their perspective from their adjusting hand to their stabilization hand. If this sounds strange to you, think about how you drive a car. Where do you focus your gaze and your attention? Maybe you're the kind that looks all around when you drive. Okay, so now you're going downhill on a windy road in a heavy truck and bad brakes. Now where do you focus your attention? No doubt you know how to create intense focus and you know where you need to look. That's the kind of focused attention you need to give to your stabilization hand. Your adjusting hand will figure it out when you get there. The point of what I'm trying to show you is that the things that generally hold us back are the things that live in our blind spot because we don't see them. We don't fix them. Have you ever known someone to point out other people's faults without any awareness that those faults are even greater in their life than in the people they're picking on? Of course you have. That's because we all have blind spots. The trick is trying to get enough of a glimpse into our blind spot to actually do something about it. I believe it was Aristotle who said the greatest fool in the world is the one who thinks he sees himself as he truly is. The problem with mirrors is that they are brutally honest. But how do you hold a mirror to yourself to see if you're really behaving as you ought to? Humans, by their nature, do not like being corrected. On the other hand, there's tremendous danger in allowing yourself to be corrected by someone who does not know, or even worse, someone who has an agenda and it's not in your best interest. While it is very good to receive judgment and correction from a mentor that you do trust, I think we all must develop an ability to critique and correct ourselves. Let me go back for just a minute. Most students ask their peers for critique and correction. I think this is a huge mistake because they don't know any more than you do. Would I take cooking lessons from someone who can't cook? No, it's good to have a mentor who can critique you. They can judge you where you're improving and where you might be regressing. But most importantly, they have nothing to prove and their only goal is to help you. However, this is good from time to time. Most of the daily work and improvement, the daily grind, needs to come from the work you do on you and the process of thinking things through and disciplining your hand and mind to perform. So what I'd like to do is to give you a framework for how you can develop a habit of self-assessment. First, I do want to say that good teaching is fundamental to growth. Those who endeavor to be self-taught tend to create more self-esteem than they do confidence. It's much better to have it the other way around. I say that because I don't want to diminish the value of great coaching, but the day-to-day -day work of growth and development is something you have to do yourself. So let's talk about a framework for daily improvement. The first is to set a clear objective. In sports, this is easy. The baseball player wants to hit the ball, and the basketball player wants to make a basket. Easy. In chiropractic, it's not so easy. 
I've talked about this before, but our objective is to correct the position of the nucleus and to position the vertebra above it. If that is our objective, then we must know biomechanics to know how best to do that. So that's an area of study that will improve our adjusting ability. In the lack of any other resource, I would highly recommend White and Punjabi. Okay, we have an objective, but now we need to develop the skill. Skill comes from repetition. It isn't enough to think about it or observe it. You have to get your hands busy and do it. The problem is that one adjustment is actually a compilation of multiple movements, with each subtle movement affecting the others, for better or for worse. For this reason, it's best to break the adjustment into different components that can be practiced independently. For example, one of the first cervical drills that I would do was to set up the patient and then to see how relaxed I can get them with the subtle movements of my hands. What I quickly discovered was that the more I relaxed, but the more they relaxed. When the patient would tighten up and resist, it was usually because I gave them a subtle cue that led to that response. The next challenge was the patient in acute pain. They were resisting me, but not in response to my movements, but simply because of fear and apprehension. Can I use my hands to get that patient to relax? It's a fun exercise, and you'll find that if you can do it, it only creates a window of opportunity. How much of a window of opportunity can you create? How many times, especially as a student, have I heard doctors implore their patients to relax? That's not their job. That's your job, if you can do it. Let me give you another example, although it won't be that wildly different. With the pelvic bench, I knew I needed to work on better stabilization. I also realized that the point of I can't was that certain muscles just weren't strong enough on me. So I would drill on a dummy, not one of my classmates, but an actual dummy. I would get in the stance with proper hand placement, but then I would drill the stabilization until my abs were sore and my buns were burning. I'd take a break and then I'd do it again. As I got stronger, the stabilization did its job and the adjustments as a whole improved by building on that weakness. All right, I'll give you one final one. On the knee chest and high-low, I would do drills to find the proper line of correction. Early on, I began to recognize that there's a line of correction that's good enough to get a cavitation, but not good enough to get a correction. So I had to drill in order to find that perfect line of correction and drill it until it became second nature to find it. Okay, so step three, how do you assess what you are currently doing to find areas for improvement? This is the hardest step and the entire point of our topic today. There are two steps actually. Step one, video yourself adjusting. The more you hate this idea, the more you need to do it. If you love the idea, then you probably really need to do it as well. Step two is you need to analyze the film. This is difficult because this is a skill unto itself. This is something that athletes do all the time. In fact, if you've never seen it before, I would highly recommend you go to YouTube and enter the word details and either Kobe Bryant or Peyton Manning. These two guys know how to break down film like nobody else. Their playing success was no doubt linked to their incredible ability to break down film. So start watching film and look for the subtleties. You can pick up a lot by seeing how these guys assess their sports, even if you yourself know nothing about the sport. Small changes have big effects. Use the video to figure out how the tiny changes you make in your contact and thrust lead to big changes on the film. This is hard work, no doubt, but it will create big improvement. Everybody today carries around a phone in their pocket, so this is much easier today than it ever was before. 
You'll never be able to feel your own adjustment, but this technique is about as close as you can get to that, and it enables you to make controlled changes that will lead to improvement. There's an old story that the first time Dr. Gonstead saw a recording of one of his adjustments, he said, never show that to anybody again. He realized that what he saw himself doing and what he felt himself doing were not the same. I had a similar experience the first time I saw a recording of myself. I then purposed in my mind to try to make the adjustment look as good as possible. I wanted to see if doing that would make my adjustments better or worse. I realized that either was a true possibility, so I really wanted to know which it was. I quickly found that as I cleaned up the appearance, the adjustment itself got better. When I started teaching my class at Life University, the walls of the room that I taught in were covered in mirrors, so I could see myself from different angles at any different moment. The class was just setups, so I was determined to create picture-perfect setups. This drilled the habit of good setups into my head, which also translated into better adjustments whenever I gave one. I know this is not the kind of work you want to get excited about, but this is the behind-the-scenes work that will pay big dividends, and you have the tools in your hands and at your disposal that most of us older ones never had when we were trying to learn. In the end, I think the best approach is to create a mentality that seeks out a different perspective. It's far too easy to become comfortable and complacent with what we already know and what we already do. In this regard, I'm really not talking about those who are new to this, but I mean the ones who have done this for a while and have found their comfort zone, also known as a rut. My wife was just telling me that in dentistry, you're considered a new doc until you've practiced for 10 years. Honestly, I think the same is true for chiropractic. 10 years was a marker that allowed me to add experience and wisdom to what I already knew how to do. I think it would be wise to set that 10-year marker in your mind as an important milestone. If you have fewer years than that, focus on learning from your mistakes and recognizing patterns and habits that might be holding you back. If you have more years than that, focus on what you take for granted and assumptions that you make. Investigate and challenge those assumptions to see if they're always true, sometimes true, or just feel true. There's so much more that I can say about this, but I think this is a good place to stop for this week. I've given you some tips on how to think and how to practice. Hopefully you'll be able to find a way to make them work for you. So let me offer you one other thing. If you'd like to evaluate your film of your own adjusting, but don't feel equipped to do that on your own, I'd be willing to help you. If you'd like for me to evaluate your videos of you adjusting, I can put them together like an episode of details and I'll send it back to you. I'll also put them in the subscription area so other people can learn from them as well. If you want to do that, just take a video of yourself adjusting straight on, not at an angle. You can do pelvic bench, cervical chair, high-low or knee chest, whatever you want or as many as you want, and I'll put it all together for you. Don't worry, I'm not going to be cruel. I want to help you if you need it. You can send your videos to the 1505 Club, that's T-H-E-1505 C-L-U-B at gmail.com. Speaking of the subscription area, I'm going to put the link in the show description. I'm still working on adding things to the subscription area, but I will be adding some original content there as well. Well, I hope you found this helpful and you can use some of what we talked about today to create a plan for making you a better adjuster every single day. So until next week, I hope you have the very best week possible and I'll see you again next time.